Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Once again, to Americans watching the footy, round eight has concluded as of a little over 24 hours ago. We're sitting down to record now and recap all the fun. I am Ethan Castle coming to you from South San Francisco, California. And I am Benjamin Castle coming to you from South San Francisco, California. Why the hell are you here? Well, my roommate tested positive for COVID, but I am clearly built different. I was isolating in my room for a couple days, back home as a close contact, came home because it would make no sense for me to stay if I were in fact negative, and I am. So I'm going to be here for at least a few more days, at which time we'll be able to record the next one as well. So hopefully we won't have another virtual episode for an extended period of time. Thankfully, I didn't have to follow West Australia's contact tracing protocols. Yeah, if this were West Australia, the only way we'd be able to see you would be like through bulletproof glass and we'd both have to be wearing bubble wrap and condoms. Don't forget the astronaut helmets too, like that Ferris State professor wore. That guy was a dickhead. Well, who knows? I could have been a vector of disease. You probably are one. You killed grandma. Well, I saw my grandmother yesterday, so we'll see how that goes. Anyway, I'd say that the most interesting half of this round, the most compelling back and forth half was probably the very first half of the 18 with Port Adelaide and the Western Bulldogs. Just a lot of training off of goals and time in the forward half. Ended up being a four-point margin at that point. Then the third quarter was where Port exploded and it ended up being Port 12-14-86, defeating the Bulldogs 10-9-69. Nice. I guess we're just jumping into this. Okay, I was going to give some sort of general statement about the round, but sure, we'll just kick this thing off because this outcome I think is one of the major stories of the round. Other than that, there was a game that we'll get to later that really flipped on its head in the final minutes of the fourth quarter, but none of the games this round really had a super dramatic finish within the final minutes, you know, with the score being decided by one kick. So... So all of a sudden, Port have strung together three wins in a row, and they're looking much more like their normal selves, and that's despite Charlie Dixon being out. I think Todd Marshall was one of the top performers overall in this one. I think what helped him is that he didn't have to spend any time taking the ruck contest as well. He had Sam Hayes taking the vast majority of them and ended up getting 37 hitouts. Hayes, Port were plus 19 there. Meanwhile, Marshall got two goals, one, eight marks, nearly 300 meters gained. It's not that he's completely unnatural in the ruck. It's that clearly he's of better use elsewhere. And since Hayes has made his debut, he's been in the place where he serves the team best. The biggest takeaway that I had from this game was that A, it was a really solid performance for Travis Boak. Carl Lehman was pretty decent as well. And both those things added up nicely. 
Port Adelaide, we've said they needed to not just be good, they needed to be head and shoulders above the rest. And while they weren't necessarily statistically that far above the competition, they did outplay a really good midfield because that's where the Bulldogs' strength lies. Obviously, this was a limited Bulldogs roster without Tim English and without Marcus Bonampelli. But I didn't think Bonampelli's absence with how they've been deploying him was even that noticeable. He had been playing pretty far forward the last few weeks anyway, so that really doesn't excuse their poor defensive showing. I think, once again, this hammers home just how vital Tim English is to everything that they're doing. But I think there's also a clear sign that Port Adelaide have figured out how to play without Charlie Dixon. Jeremy Finlayson with another three goals. Marshall with the two, like you said. Mitch Georgiatis didn't kick very well, but he was very active in front. And it's taken them longer than they would have liked, but they've finally figured out life without Charlie Dixon. I think it's fair to say, now that they've got three wins... Two over teams that made finals last year. Yes, the Bulldogs missing a couple key pieces. And yes, yes, the Saints one was in Cairns. But still, they've gone out there and played well against quality teams. They've earned some points that they weren't supposed to be able to get, especially considering their early form. And assuming nothing crazy happens next week, they'll be four and five. And then all of a sudden, all right, they're back in this thing. It would be a long road for them to be a top four team, but they look like there's a path to being a finals team again. They are definitely off of life support. One thing that I'll say is that I have been expecting more out of Zach Butters. Behind on 13 touches and seven marks, but I just don't think he's been in just moving the ball as a whole. 204 meters gained is an okay number, but would expect him to be maybe more around the 300 or above mark like Connor Rosie was. Rosie with 21 disposals and six clearances. He is an excellent supplemental piece. And when you've got Boak and Wines also in there, have no idea how good he'd be as the main guy, but good for him. He doesn't have to be the main guy at least for a couple more years while Travis Boak is still producing as well as he has 30 disposals, six tackles, six clearances, and a goal one. Also 10 score involvements for Boak. I think this game also casts a lot of doubt over the Bulldogs, not just because they're three and five, but because they've just looked so unstable. And in this game, it was their defensive insufficiency that really cost them. A couple bad plays from Ryan Gardner early on led to two of Port's first four goals. It was a very good kick by Stephen Motlop for one of those, but it was because of a Gardner deliberate that he completely lost Sam Powell Pepper in the goal score as well. He hasn't been a name that we've talked about much, and it's probably because he hasn't been doing all that well. Caleb Daniel was hardly noticeable. You said a few weeks ago that Ed Richards was someone that you've been waiting for to step up, and in this game, he didn't. He got crushed by Todd Marshall after Tim O'Brien went down injured. Yes, there was a size disadvantage for Richards, but they've got to have someone who's able to step up and handle bigger forwards, and that's clearly an obstacle for them right now. The other obstacle you alluded to, O'Brien's injury, it was a left calf injury that'll keep him out for at least two weeks. That was one of at least three and maybe four injuries for the Bulldogs all in the second half. Latham Vandermeer had a high-grade hamstring strain, and that'll put him out for at least eight weeks. And that's the opposite hamstring from the one he injured early in the season, so he'll likely not be able to operate at full capacity for the rest of the year, if not longer. Then you had Cody Waitman breaking his collarbone, trying to bump Sam Hayes in the fourth. That left the Bulldogs down to just 20. And then Ryan Gardner also went down in the fourth as well, so 
The Bulldogs are already in a figurative world of hurt with their position on the ladder and who hasn't been firing for them. And looks like they're in a very literal one now as well. I would say the list of positives for the Bulldogs for this game is obviously pretty brief, but I do think it's worth noting Jack McRae had 32 disposals and nine intercepts. He's been able to play more of his game with Bonapelli going forward, and that's probably the biggest plus out of that movement, especially considering Bonapelli hasn't done much these last couple rounds. Also very happy for Bukukamis to get another shot in the AFL and get his first goal. Again, Bukukamis, friend of Calmen's basketball player, Kwani Kwani, who I happen to know. Go Bears. And with those injuries, Kamis should definitely be able to stay in there. Wondering if there's opportunities for someone like Josh Shackey or Jamara Hagen to get back in. Bailey Smith, 24 disposals is low by his standards, but he did end up gaining 578 meters and kicking a couple goals. But what really impressed me is his ability to fend off defenders. I'd love to see him playing American football, maybe as a running back or tight end, or maybe even as a linebacker. I'm not sure specifically what position he'd play, but it would be fun to watch. Strikes me as kind of a tight end or a physical receiver with his build. While the Bulldogs struggled defensively, Port Adelaide's defense had a pretty solid game, even without Alir Alir in top form. He finished with six intercepts, but struggled with Aaron Naughton, who finished with a game-high four goals. Tough matchup for anyone. Tom Clurry did a really nice job, even if the stats didn't quite stand out for him. Darcy Byrne-Jones and Dan Houston each with seven intercepts, though. We saw Houston figure in a lot more in the middle of the ground the first few rounds, but considering the changes they made and just how their typical midfield pieces are going so well, I think he's been and should continue to be a good stabilizer and ball mover in that halfback line. Brian Marambe. All right, I will make one last statement here and then... Is, we'll it, the, is it the efficiency thing? Oh, uh, my God. I'll mention that as well. That was pathetic. No, let him in. Let him in, but hold him. No. That was so pathetic. Shmuggy Bumble. Oh, the light's not even on out here. You just eat, I think? I've been having a light on all throughout the match. Who do Port have in round 10? Is that Geelong or is that 11? That is round 10. Sweet. That's another Saturday Arvo. Mm-hmm. Because you're getting a lot of them. And then... Way too fucking many. It's getting ridiculous. And then they... And then, I think I like the 11.30 slot yeah, the most. And then Port's got... And then Port's got Essendon before having some of the first buys. Although, I love having the home games at night, but I like the 11.30 slot for that GWS game. Anyway, moving on. Uh, you, or, you, you were going to give last... Oh, one. yes. One very damning stat is that the Bulldogs actually had 49 inside 50s to Port Adelaide's 44, but... The power got scores out of nearly two-thirds of theirs, where the Bulldogs got scores of out of just about three-sevenths of theirs. That's just not going to cut it. Especially when their defense has been lacking. They have to make their offensive chances count. And considering their clearance success, plus four there against one of the most talented midfields of the competition, you'd really want them to be able to make that positive stat show on the scoreboard. Before we move on, I'm going to dig into the closet here and dust off the Are You Screwedometer for the Bulldogs. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, how screwed are the Western Bulldogs? I never had the Bulldogs super high before, but considering how they've been struggling in both 50s, and that they now have a motivated and fast Collingwood team up next, this could spell some real trouble for them. 
I'm going to go with Light 7. I'm going to give it a 6, simply because I think Tim English's return should cure a lot. That said, if they struggle at all with him back, they're in serious trouble. Because looking at their schedule around 16 through 21, you've got the Lions and Swans back-to-back on the road. Then you host St. Kilda and the Demons. You play at Geelong and you host Fremantle. So if they don't get things right by then, they're going to miss the finals. And the two rounds before that, coming off their bye, they got the Giants in Sydney and playing Hawthorne. And I feel like by then Hawthorne should be able to figure out how to play four good quarters. So their schedule is pretty unforgiving after the break. Game on, Luke Beveridge and staff, and game on to the list. And if you heard Brian Harambe just now outside Ethan's door, and again, that was him saying game on as well. Now, Ethan was the one with a closer eye on much of the power and the dogs, especially in the second half, while I watched and kind of slept through a lot of the slog that was Fremantle and North Melbourne. You know, the Western Australian teams played pretty similar games this round in which the home team dominated the whole way, even if they may not have scored consistently. Fremantle were a little slower in the middle quarters, but ended up winning by a good 78 points. And honestly, it could have been way more because they were their somewhat inaccurate selves still. Fremantle 15-12-102, defeating North Melbourne 3-6-24. Like the Brisbane Lions, who that other Western team played, I forget their name at the moment. Forward half pressure was instantly a positive for the Dockers, and it stayed that way throughout the night. And they did so without the guy who really drives that pressure, Michael Frederick. They were missing him, Lake Akers, Griffin Logue, Lloyd Meek, Rory Lobb, and Travis Collier. All the COVID protocols, though they did get Hayden Young and Heath Chapman back, Sean Darcy was healthy, and Jai Amis made his debut and immediately scored on his very first kick part of a 31-2 first quarter. The lead was 38 at halftime and 64 after three. This was a pretty consistent, methodical, and dominant performance. And if they had done this with a full team, you would have said, yeah, this was expected. But considering how many guys they were missing, I think this speaks volumes to their depth. I will put an asterisk on that, moderately sized, because not only were they playing North, but This was North without one of their best goal kickers in Nick Larkey. And also Ben Mackay went down. Once again, he's just been having a rotten go with things this year. And this time it looks like it may have been an MCL injury, which David Noble fears could put him out for up to six weeks. The only real casualty for Fremantle was Sam Switkowski, who got Jason Horn Francis's knee to the back of his head. Totally accidental. To borrow a term that you borrowed a few weeks ago, ugly geometry. So Switkowski will likely not be making the trip to Gold Coast. But two guys whose performances really represented Fremantle's depth to me were Bailey Banfield. He's regularly been the injury sub, and he would be a key fixture on a lot of teams. Finished with two goals, three behinds, 18 disposals, and eight marks. Five tackles as well, keeping up with that four and a half pressure, as we said, and eight score involvements. And every week, Nathan O'Driscoll finds a way to impress me. This time, my favorite play from him was tapping a ball away from the goal line that would have gone in for a single point. He was able to keep the play alive inside of a Brennan Cox goal. Cox was playing very far forward at the time. That extended the lead to... 40 to 14. I just thought those little one percenters 
are such a great example of the way O'Driscoll plays. You know, I obviously watch Geelong more than I watch any other team. And his skill set reminds me of Max Holmes as a wing, but with a little bit extra sense to do these things sort of instinctually that usually only the most seasoned veterans do. And for him to do that as a teenager, sky's really the limit for this guy. I'm surprised that the broadcast team hasn't quite gotten in on singing his praises every week. I think they understand that he's a good player and they appreciate him, but maybe not to the level that they should. I think it's probably because they're looking at the familiar faces and those familiar faces performed well again. Another 30 plus disposal game for Andrew Brayshaw. He had 34 of them along with 10 clearances, seven tackles and six marks to think that we were seeing those numbers for any Fremantle player. And Nat Fife has not played this season makes it all the more remarkable. No Mick Malthouse. He should not be traded. I just think that Five can be a great addition to an already really strong unit, maybe even keep him a bit more toward the back with his kicking ability. But the pressure is going to be off him because of what Brayshaw so wrong with 27 disposals and a few others have been able to do. And Fife with Jordan Clark there in the halfback could be an interesting combo. Clark with another 100-point night for himself, kicking a goal with 23 disposals and seven marks. Other individual performances to be highlighted for the Dockers. Caleb Sarong had nine tackles. Sean Darcy, back in the ruck, 42 hitouts, 17 disposals, seven marks in the goal. Pretty much even with North Melbourne's tandem in terms of hitouts, they actually won the hitouts. Darcy with some slight relief from Cox and Tracy by five over Goldstein and Coleman Jones. The Dockers also won clearances. 48 to 31, stoppage clearances 40 to 21. Will Brody, another really good game, 37 disposals and 493 meters gained. Heath Chapman, 12 intercepts. For North, there were a couple positives. Ben McKay once again looked solid before he got hurt. 10 intercepts in his brief time out there. Luke McDonald, 26 disposals, 9 marks, and 555 meters gained. And while Taron Thomas didn't take the world by storm, he certainly looks like he's getting back up to speed, at least much more than he had been in the last couple outings. He finished with 18 disposals and 7 tackles. The other big positive for North was Cam Zorhar taking a legitimate mark of the year contender more over Todd Goldstein than over any defender, but it was sensational. The number that stands out to me looking at everything is a more than doubling in inside 50s for Fremantle. 67 to 32, and Fremantle were about one and a half times as efficient as North inside 50 all the while. They were still below their average efficiency for the season, but just looking at those numbers comparatively, just that last piece of the puzzle coming into place and you realize, wow, there are so few positives for North here. Depending on your perspective, one thing that could be construed as a positive, they're certainly not lacking in heart, considering that they're fighting all the time, but... How do we look at this? Is it a positive that they're fighting a lot because it shows they care and that they're frustrated they're losing? Or is it a bitch move because they just get down by a lot and then try to fight people? Well, there could be a couple different ways you use the word fight. In terms of putting in the effort the whole way, I mean, as an Eagles fan, I wish that I would see that more often. But in terms of getting into some extracurricular activity, as I seem to have picked up from some hockey commentators, I'm not a huge fan of it. Whether or not it's just natural intensity, the fact that it's happening so much 
when they're down by as much as they are, looks bad if nothing else. That's all for the Friday doubleheader. Saturday had five games effectively split into three windows. The two in the A slot, I think both ended up creating a lot of discussion for very different reasons. You had Richmond taking on Collingwood at the MCG and Sydney hosting Gold Coast. Let's start with that Richmond-Collingwood game, which you, Benjamin, were the sole proprietor of. Richmond winning that one by 27-17-11-113-12-14-86. The big focus for a lot of people coming into this match was the return of Dustin Martin. And for good reason. He's one of the best players of this generation. And he ended up having more forward time than anything else had. Two goals won, 23 disposals, five marks. Doesn't look like he had really missed a beat, and it seemed like they knew when he was going to be good to go. That's a huge positive. Jeremy Howe was the one on him, but Dusty largely got the better of him. But my focus coming in was much more on Tom Lynch versus Darcy Moore. I expected that to be the one-on-one matchup that, if any, could define the game, and it very much did because Lynch dominated Lynch ended up with six goals won and could have kicked a couple more because he had a couple easy misses, including one where he missed absolutely everything. He ended up with 11 marks, three of which were contested to Darcy Moore's five overall. Granted, Moore was not on him the whole time, but he was really the only logical matchup for Lynch considering his height. I noticed more than anything that Darcy Moore seemed to be playing too far away from Tom Lynch most of the time, and maybe that's because Moore isn't as accustomed to playing man coverage like that. He's more naturally a halfback, but with Jordan Roughhead out and with Jack Magin omitted, Moore was the key guy in the back. He was able to slow Lynch down when he played him more directly, and we saw that a bit in the second half, but it took too long for him to adjust, and by then, Lynch and Richmond were well more than halfway home. To nobody's surprise, Richmond dominated the center circle without Brody Grundy. 49-16 on hitouts, Tobin and Curvis with 33 of them. Collingwood had 16 hitouts. That's the number that Ivan Soldo had as well. Welcome back, Ivan. Just eight disposals for him, but got a goal and was actually visible again. A very welcome sign for Richmond, just kind of a player that can make them completely deep in a lot of ways when he is playing better. Still, the only one clearance is 35 to 31. Noah Balta also had nine marks. The other guy who's clearly taken the footy world by storm has been Morris Rioli Jr., which has been so nice to see. He's such an entertaining player and part of what's basically one of the sports royal families, even though he didn't finish with any goals in this game. Having said that, his support of Tom Lynch was crucial. Didn't help him in the marking contest, obviously but he seemed to almost be tagging his own teammate, got the ball to Lynch a lot, ended up with... How many score involvements? Yeah, and how many assists? Is that written on here? I don't see the assists. Can I add that? Where is that? Is that on the basic stats? It's on the basic stats. Oh, really? Three. Ended up with six score involvements and three goals this, and also was a really good supplier of forward half pressure. Only two tackles, but they both resulted in holding the ball calls. The final score was a bit misleading. This game was not as close as it suggested. The Tigers led by as much as 47 midway through the fourth quarter. And that amazes me that they were out to that kind of margin, considering how many kind of turn it up moments they had early. I count three or four. Lynch with one of his really bad kicks. 
a couple from Shea Bolton, but they didn't let those errors phase them, and they just ended up, and they just kept on running right through Collingwood. And speaking of Shea Bolton, he may be an underrated kick just in the field, not necessarily for goal. He had a really nice setup for Tom Lynch's fourth of six goals. As for what I saw in Collingwood, another three-goal performance for Jack Ginevan. That was on just five touches, though, was limited pretty well. Ollie Henry with a couple, Will Hoskin Elliott with a couple, and a hell of a mark to set up one. I think that's one of the other nominees for Mark of the Week. Maya checked two goals on just eight touches. In their midfield, a whole lot of activity for Jack Crisp. 606 meters gained with 30 disposals and six tackles, but only one clearance. And that's been an area where he'd done a lot better this year. And Jordan Degoe somewhat made up for that with six clearances and 22 touches. But I didn't really notice him. I noticed Taylor Adams along with Crisp the most in the midfield. Adams gained nearly 500 meters, had five clearances himself as well, 29 disposals. And a goal one. The goal definitely made me notice him a bit more. But even without that, I was more impressed with his output than a lot of other pies. This was a loss that dropped Collingwood to 500. Both teams now sit at 4-4. Four and four. The pies are really entering their toughest stretch of schedule of the season. They'll be hosting the Bulldogs at Marvel Stadium. See, Richmond, you can play at Marvel Stadium. Collingwood is hosting their second game there this season, weirdly enough. Hopefully it will be close to full, if not completely packed. Then they travel out to Perth to take on Fremantle, then host Carlton at the MCG, then Hawthorne at the MCG, and then they've got the Demons at the MCG. So, really grueling stretch leading into the bye for the Pies. If you're in Collingwood shoes, how do you take inventory right now? How do you evaluate things big picture, and how much is it skewed by this performance? I think this performance emphasizes how important Jordan Roughhead is, as a key defender, as a fullback, and it makes me wonder why Jack Madgen, the former basketballer that he is, has been excluded, because Darcy Moore can by no means do it alone, and when there's more than one formidable target, that's going to definitely be an issue. I assume at this point that he'll be drawing the Aaron Naughton matchup this next week, unless they, if they don't change the lineup, but hopefully they're able to alleviate him in some way, shape, or form. What I've been getting from these last few games is a reminder that Collingwood are still a team that's rebuilding. They're still a team that is forming a new identity under Craig McRae. They had a hell of a start, to be sure. And that opening round win against St. Kilda is impressive, maybe a little depreciated this week compared to others. It was great to see them come out of the gate swing. They clearly have a lot of energy, and some of it's coming from younger pieces but not having Brody Grundy is really hurting them. It's great that Aiden Begg is getting time, but he still needs to grow physically a bit more in order to impact the hitouts. And if he can't do that, I'm wondering if he would be better placed elsewhere. We were talking about Collingwood early on and wondering how legit they were, and we gave them somewhat high marks because of the experience that they have. I think in hindsight, we were, I think in hindsight, maybe we, we were, I think in hindsight, we were hyping them up a bit too much too early, uh, too early, just out of excitement for, uh, just out of excitement compared to how they've been. <laughs> That's all going to pick up. Okay. I've begun to realize that we were hyping them up a bit too much just based on a fast start, and we maybe should have waited to take out the legitometer as opposed to the RU screwdometer for another round or two. It's easier to tell when teams are in bad positions early compared to when they're in good ones, in my opinion. One last remark on Richmond, another positive for them. 
Clearly, the rest did Trent Cotchin some good, because a game-high 7 clearances, 29 disposals, and a goal can't be wrong. It seems like more and more teams are following the Chris Scott, Joel Selwood blueprint, where they know they can afford to rest these older pieces, not just because they might be playing weaker sides, but because they have the depth in order to make up for them. And if Richmond end up being a finals team, I think that rest could end up being really valuable down the stretch. I think it's fair to say we expected Richmond to take care of Collingwood, maybe not by that much. I would not say we expected the Gold Coast Suns to take care of the Sydney Swans at the SCG or anywhere, but they sure did. Neither team kicked particularly accurately, but the Suns played a cleaner game overall and was Sydney 8 goals 13-61, defeated by Gold Coast 10-15-75 in what I would say is the most shocking result of round 8 with ease. If you were to rank all 9 games out of a round with every team playing, you would obviously put the North Melbourne and West Coast games as the most secure outcome. But I would have said, out of the other seven, the team most likely to take care of business, like if I was told, you know, you have to pick a winner that isn't Brisbane or Fremantle, you know, like a survivor pool type deal or something, I would have taken Sydney. When we previewed this game, I said that the Swans not only have forwards that should be able to wreck Gold Coast's defense, but are also a little bit better at every other spot. And instead, it was the Suns who were the better team on this day, just about all around. And they did it with a couple of tactical adjustments that I thought were really good. And this has been a common theme when they've succeeded this year, is they've made adjustments that maybe wouldn't have been obvious fixes to most observers, but something that clearly Stuart Dew and the rest of the coaching staff identified, and it worked out. Specifically, they had Lockie Weller playing further forward, which was especially surprising to me because I thought he's one of their more reliable defenders typically. And they had Isaac Rankin playing further back, at least to start the game, though he did progressively make his way up the ground in what became a really good defensive showing by the Suns. They only allowed two behinds in the fourth quarter, it seemed like Sydney had momentum after getting behind by 23, drawing even with four seconds left in the third quarter on a Logan McDonald goal. But Levi Casbold got a goal in the opening minute of the fourth quarter and then got the goal to put the game away, opening up a 14-point lead with 99 seconds to go. I certainly didn't look at this game as one where I thought the home team would be booed at the final siren, but deservedly so. Sydney did not play very well, and they didn't play all that cleanly either. Three kicks were plus seven to Gold Coast, and I was surprised that Buddy gave away three in the first quarter, and I think that was a sign of things to come in this one. As talented as the Swans are, it didn't really show in this game, even though they did a good job neutralizing players that we thought would be the game-changing presences for Gold Coast. It was the guys that were supposed to be more secondary contributors that ended up having big games. They limited Tuke Miller to 20 touches and a goal. Ben Ainsworth just one goal. Will Powell just 19 touches. Matt Rowell only 16. Levi Caswell didn't have a goal until the fourth quarter, as we said. 
And yet, Braden Fiorini had a monster game. 29 disposals, 7 marks, and 448 meters gained. Brandon Ellis, 26 disposals and 10 marks. David Swallow, 24 disposals and 7 tackles. Connor Butterick, 11 marks, 6 intercepts. Will Powell, 19 disposals and a game-high 13 intercepts. Charlie Ballard, 11 intercepts. And the turnovers really piled up for the Swans. Even though the final total in turnovers was just 70 to 69. Nice. The ones that went against Sydney loomed really large, especially as they struggled to gain any traction in the fourth quarter. Once they got on that run in the third, you thought, all right, Gold Coast had their fun. This is going to be a little like the North Melbourne game where Sydney doesn't play all that well, but still comes home with a win. And then they just got completely shut down in the fourth quarter. They played from behind for almost the entirety of the game. In fact, they never had a lead. They were down 14 after a quarter. They were down 17 at half after a couple of sequences where it looked like they could have gotten back into this thing. They had cut it to 36-30 before giving up the final two goals of the opening half. And even after they came back from down 23 in the third, they just never gained the traction they needed to. It was a quiet game for a lot of pieces that you normally expect to see dominate for the Swans. Isaac Heaney kicked just three behinds. Errol Golden, 11 touches, that's it, though he did have five marks and five tackles. Dane Rampey, only 12 touches. Logan McDonald did have that big goal, but had just nine touches. Hayden McLean, only four. Five disposals, Tom Patley limited to nine. This was a really disappointing outing for Sydney, and I thought they would have a chance to handle Jared Witts better than most teams did. Even without Tom Hickey, I thought Peter Laddams would be able to hold his own. They got beat in the center circle 42 to 23 and lost clearances 36 to 29. So good on Gold Coast for actually making something out of their hit out advantage, because there are times when they've wasted that in the past. The clearances were where Matt Rowell made his biggest impact. He had a joint high seven. I think maybe you were overvaluing Peter Laddams in that little piece there. I knew that once Hickey was confirmed out, it was going to be a tough time for the Swans in the ruck contest themselves. I just expected them to be better off on the ground following those contests. And they sure as hell weren't. What surprised me is even with Nick Blakey starting a lot of their sequences, Sydney still couldn't get much going. He gained 656 meters and recorded 25 disposals, and they couldn't generate that much from it. This was a legitimately good defensive performance from Gold Coast, which is so weird to say. But it's happened a couple of times this season. And it's happened against competition you wouldn't expect it to, which is what makes their struggles so many other weeks so frustrating. The weird thing is... Daniel Cherney tweeted out after this contest that Stuart Dew has coached against 12 other coaches at least four times. The only one of those 12 against whom he has a winning record is John Longmire, and Dew is now 4-2 and two against him. And that just makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. I'm assuming that his success here was building off some of the tactical success that he had in the past. And even with Patty McCartan pulling down 12 intercepts and doing the work that we expect him to in the back... It didn't really matter because when McCartan wasn't doing that, the Swans defense got exposed. Gold Coast with 55 inside 50s to Sydney's 41. Teams had similar efficiency slightly in the Swans' favor, both with disposals and with inside 50s. Gold Coast was just the better team up and down the ground other than for a chunk of the third quarter. So where does this put both of these teams in your book? I mean... 
The Suns are as erratic as any team other than Greater Western City and maybe even more so. What is it about these expansion sides and also about teams who like fully capitalizing their nicknames? And now the Swans are sitting at 5-3, and three, and I don't think they've really performed all that well since round two. They exploded in the fourth quarter of the ANSAC round in Launceston against Hawthorne, but I'm thinking more and more now, and we'll get to this more when we get to Hawthorne's game, but I think that was more Hawthorne running out of gas than Sydney catching fire. The Swans have the pieces to compete with and beat top teams. I think a win over Melbourne might be more attainable for them than for almost any other team. I think they'll match up well against St. Kilda. We've seen what they've done to Geelong. There are just days, though, when they collectively seem completely off. And I think the way they play, it's not like they're able to really be saved by one standout performer putting the team on his back when other guys don't deliver. They kind of need everyone operating in order to succeed. When they're at their best, they're very balanced, but it doesn't seem like they have the sort of situation where one guy can really just take over. Even if Buddy Franklin's on his best, they still got to get the ball to him for him to do his thing. And even when he scores six goals, it might not even matter as we saw last round. The important thing is that they make sure they aren't just going to him. And that happened a little bit in this one. I think it happened less later on. But that has to be part of their offensive strategy going in. They have a wealth of players who can kick well for goal. I think Chad Warner coming through the middle might be the most underrated of those. He ended up kicking one goal three. But I think he could be that final piece more than anyone else in terms of the goal kicking. I thought overall Warner did have a pretty nice game. 19 disposals, 7 tackles, 6 marks. But they didn't have a lot on the finishing end. And more than anything, he had to pull so much of the weight in the midfield because other midfielders weren't really there. Also, I thought this was the first time Isaac Rankin has really played a villain role. He was engaging with the fans, super fired up after big plays and scores. It was really fun to see the Suns with some attitude, some personality. The only other time we had really seen that this year was how excited Levi Casbold was after he had scored against Carlton. I still think the Suns are the Suns. My perception of the Suns has not changed that much. They're highly erratic. On a good day, they can be really good, but they have far too many bad days where they just get sliced up defensively. We're going to see one of those next round when they host Fremantle. Don't you worry. See, this is a matchup where, I don't know, because Fremantle's such a different team to play against. Fremantle's very sharp defensively, but if you can handle their forward pressure, you can run with them. I don't think the Suns are able to do that, considering their defense has had some pretty bad turnovers over the course of the year. But there's an avenue there for them to give the Dockers a challenge. And then after that... The schedule doesn't look terrible for them for a while. They got the Bulldogs at Marvel. Then they got Hawthorne and North in Darwin before their bye. And then after that, they host the Crows before traveling to Adelaide to take on Port. I'm not saying they're going to shoot up a ladder, but I'm also not saying any of those games are out of their reach. I think they're kind of the spoiler. That's just where they are right now. If they go out and beat a top team, you could say, oh yeah, I see how they did that. But also, you'd be very unsurprised if they were to lose four out of five games. Hell, five out of five. North might just do something weird. 
One last big positive for the Swans. This was the 10-year reunion of their premiership team. And not only was Adam Goods present, he was welcomed back warmly by both players and fans. And that's something much bigger than football. Well done. When I saw the TV schedule for this round, I was very glad that Greater Western Sydney and Geelong had the air to itself. Considering how both teams had performances that went against their trends last round, I was intrigued to see how both of them would respond. Turned out the Cats got back with the program. Not a very accurate kicking night for them once again, but that didn't matter because they overpowered the Giants. 4-11-35 for Greater Western Sydney, defeated by 12-16-88. And that was despite the Giants' lineup being unchanged for the first time in four years. Thought it was a real chance for them to benefit from that consistency. Also considering some of the late outs for Geelong with Reese Stanley out, I was wondering if Rana Galea would get a chance. He was also banged up in training. He's been banged up for a few weeks. I thought he was closer to playing, but I guess he wasn't ready just yet. That said, you strongly question Chris Scott's decision-making here. I questioned it somewhat as well. He knew what the fuck he was doing. Especially with Zach Guthrie, who may have finally found his place in the half-back line. Zach outranked Cameron, which is something I never would have expected, but when you got 23 disposals, 12 marks, 5 intercepts, 6 score involvements, and a goal himself, and gained nearly 500 meters, this was a breakout game for him, and that's something that I just never expected from him. I thought that he was just kind of going to be in that in-and-out-of-the-list kind of guy, but maybe he's got more to him than just being an interchange player. I've been very critical of his performance for a long time. I think, more than anything, he proved that he had just been miscast at the wrong spot. He's not really a midfielder. He did have one pretty lousy kick go out of bounds when he got up towards the midfield, but he seems to have really found a home in that halfback spot, his interceptability complements Tom Stewart, even if the numbers weren't quite as staggering. He helped sort of engineer sending play back in the other direction, as indicated by the score involvements. And like mentioned, he got a goal of his own. He's gotten bigger and stronger. Broadcasters and people within the team have noted just how much bigger he is, how much muscle he's put on. And I think they've started to realize at Geelong that he's not the same player as his brother, and that if you ask him to do what Cam does, you're basically just putting a square peg in a round hole. They've started to understand the nuances of Zach's talents more and finally have him in a position where he can really thrive. I would say the Guthrie's are the least similar pair of sibling teammates in terms of their playing styles. You got the McCartans together in the back for Sydney. You got the Browns that play together when they're in for Collingwood and the Daycoss is there as well. Maybe they were just relying off, relying on those trends and just not paying attention as much to the assets that make Zach a unique footballer. Other standout performers for Geelong in what turned out to be a very convincing win in which the Cats led the entire way. Mark Blitzov's a masterful performance, which was especially necessary without Reese Stanley. 25 disposals, 21 hitouts, 8 tackles, and 7 marks. Eight clearances as well. He did a lot of his own work there, even when the hitouts went very much against the Cats. It was plus 24 on the hitouts for the Giants, 49 to 25, but just plus one in clearances, 34 to 33. During the preview, I called out Mitch Duncan, challenged him as someone who needed to play better, and he answered the challenge with 33 disposals to lead all players. He also had 12 marks and 11 score involvements. 
Another really strong game for Tom Stewart with nine intercepts, but he wasn't the only defender to play well. Jake Kolejashny had eight. Sam DeConing had seven. He also sort of served as that second ruck on the few occasions Blitzovs wasn't taking them. Mark O'Connor with seven intercepts. And the aforementioned Zach Guthrie with five. Also, Mitch Nevitt made his debut as a sub, which I'm not a huge fan of. You acted like it was the worst thing anyone's ever done to anybody. I just think it's a bad look, and I think we had a case this round where someone didn't get in as a debut sub as well. Essen did once again with uh, Alistair Lord. Nevitt got in in the second quarter after Jed Buse got a Jesse Hogan shoulder to the head and looked incredibly mature and composed. 15 disposals and 7 marks, even though he was only on the ground for 51% of the game. He kicked it behind, did not manage to get his first goal, but looked like someone who might actually be a member of the Cats' best 22 or 23 when you hypothetically have the entire team healthy and available to choose from. Cooper Stevens made his first appearance as well, looked fine with 19 touches, didn't really do anything that jumped off the page, but clearly looked like he belonged out there. I was very impressed with Nevitt, though. Individual goal-kicking-wise, Jeremy Cameron got five. He seems to play some of his best games in Canberra. Jez is the all-time leading goal scorer at Monica Oval with 55, well ahead of Barry Hall and Toby Green at 36. Tyson Stengel with another three, including a nice one around the corner, and I think my favorite play of the game. There was a stretch in the second quarter where things had stagnated. Toby Green had gotten the Giants going. Geelong were sitting with just an eight-point lead, and then Ryan Myers did the unthinkable and kicked with his left foot, sending a bouncing ball into the goal square. It was going to go wide for a behind, and Stengel came through and kind of one-timed it in. Great play to create a 14-point advantage. And then just about a minute later, Zach Tui could have kicked short to Myers, but ended up going along to Tom Hawkins. Hawkins finished it off with the left snap to extend the lead to 20. And that was really where the Cats pulled away and never looked back. They stretched that lead to 41 late in the third. Stengel's fourth goal put him up by 46. And they finished with the 53-point margin in a really positive and convincing game where, yes, GWS kicked very poorly, but it seemed like everyone had been kicking exceptionally well against the Cats for a while. So they were due for some luck in that department. And I'd say even if the Giants had kicked more accurately... This was Geelong's best defensive performance of the year. Inside 50s favored the Cats 61 to 43, and they were far more efficient on them, 49% to 40, 30 shots to 17. And I thought, while the Giants forward struggled some, and while their midfielders got beat much more than they do most weeks, their failure to get shots was more a product of Geelong's defense playing so well. Yes, they had a couple of derpy turnovers here and there, But overall, it was just a really sound defensive performance with so many different guys stepping up. And remember, that's with Jed Buse going down injured and with Jack Henry still out. I think with Zach Guthrie there, they found a way to really reinforce the defense and take care of business. Impressive stats for Greater Western Sydney. Tom Green playing in front of his fan club yet again with 26 disposals and 9 tackles. Isaac Cumming with 29 disposals and a game-high 785 meters gained. Sam Taylor had 12 intercepts. He is that main guy for the Giants for at least the next few rounds while Phil Davis remains out with his hamstring injury. And in terms of the Ruck, Braden Proust with 31 hitouts and Matt Flynn with 18. Another good game for that tandem, but they couldn't make those count, as we said earlier. It seemed odd to me that the Giants 
kept playing a slower game after that back-to-back goal sequence for Stengel and Hawkins had opened the lead up to 20. You would have thought at some point there they would have tried to push the pace, get on a run themselves, and they never really created the momentum to make that possible. Now, the crew on Best on Ground thought that Geelong were the ones who were slowing the game down some, but I thought it was the Giants that initiated it somewhat. And even if the Cats did decide to slow things up a bit, they did so without repressing Brad Close, which is enormous. They still let him run. They still let him do his thing. He finished with a goal. The numbers didn't jump off the page for him. Only 127 meters gained and 12 disposals. But you saw the way he creates the opportunities, the way he goes as if he shot out of a cannon. And it really feeds into how everyone else plays. And that they were able to control the game without repressing him shows that the staff has figured out what to do with him. Whereas in that game against Hawthorne, if you remember, they started him further forward and it kind of locked him up. Speaking of the coaching staff, I was very critical of Geelong's coaching last year. Through eight rounds, I think they've done a really solid job overall. Also, congratulations to Chris Scott, tying Reg Hickey for the most coaching wins in club history at 184. Going back to the Giants' 450 struggles as we wrap this one up, their inability to finish reminded me of the Suns last round against Collingwood and how they weren't able to make the right connections on those shorter kicks. And they also reminded me of their crosstown foes in how they're often too reliant on one player and much more so than the Swans with Buddy. The Giants try to go through Toby Green too much and that doesn't make any sense considering how many options they have throughout the forward half. A lot of the mids are good enough runners to get up there and get in good goal scoring positions. We've seen that from Canelio and Ward and Taranto at times and both their top two rucks are forward 50 assets as well and we didn't really see that this round. Speaking of Canelio, limited to just 16 disposals, I thought the midfield was the one place where the Giants would really be able to give the Cats trouble, and Geelong completely dominated that segment of the game. We really appreciate you listening to this episode and all of Americans Watching the Footy, and we'd love for you to interact with us as well. We are quite active on Twitter during the rounds at Americans Footy. My personal Twitter is at BenjaminHK01. Haven't been as active there as of late with finishing up my last couple weeks at UC Berkeley, but I'll definitely be posting there a lot more when it comes to remarks on whatever the West Coast Eagles are, along with the Stanley Cup playoffs and just other happenings in my life. You can find me at Castle Media, K-A-S-S-E-L-M-E-D-I-A. And you can find my cat, Grian, on Instagram exclusively, at catnamedgrian. He is sitting here right now, and after making a bunch of noise earlier, which I'm sure some of it got into the background, he's been surprisingly quiet and relaxed, so uh, let's, let's keep that up. What wasn't quiet and relaxed was the crowd at Marvel Stadium. They were rocking under the roof on Saturday night as Essendon battled Hawthorne. It wasn't a one-point game like their meeting last year, but there was still quite the dramatic comeback there. Only this time, it was the Bombers coming out on top. And this was after five players got scratched out of the lineup late for Essendon with illness. Non-COVID illness, by the way. And it wasn't just any five. It was a pretty significant group. Sam Durham, Matt Guelphy, Jake Kelly, Jordan Ridley, and Alec Waterman. The Bombers trailed in this game... By as much as 25 in the third, they went into the fourth trailing by 15. They trailed by 17 with about 13 minutes left and then ended up scoring the final 44 points 
In all, it was a 50-8 fourth quarter. They came away with this one, 108-81, kicking 16-12 to Hawthorne's 11-15. Really, the whole sequence for Essendon over the final 12-13 minutes was basically win the center bounce, get clear, get into the forward 50 and score. They dominated hitouts for the game, 41-23 behind Sam Draper and Nick Ryan, who looked really sharp in just his second career game. Sam Draper with 29 of those hitouts, along with five clearances. Nick Bryan with 11 hitouts and one clearance. In terms of other clearance getters, it was a couple of the usual suspects in the healed Zach Merritt and the actually mattering Darcy Parrish. Each of them also wound up with a goal. And Dylan Shield, even though he was off and on for a good part of the contest with a left leg complaint, ended up with six as well as a joint high clearance getter. But I think Draper's performance impressed me the most, along with the six goals straight and eight marks from two-meter Peter Wright. Essendon took the lead with seven and a half minutes left when Zach Merritt kind of accidentally scored. Ball ended up bouncing off his lower leg and going through. That put him up 83 to 81. Then Wright scored from outside 50. The Bombers quickly got into the forward 50 again and scored after Aaron Francis took a diving mark. Archie Perkins scored just a minute after that, after Nick Hind made a really nice play to prevent a Max Lynch mark and start a rush the other way. I've said that both Nick Hind and Mason Redmond are defensemen with really good offensive skills, whether that be playing forward or sort of engineering rushes from the back, and that was on display again. And then Wright added one more off of an iffy free kick call. That gave him... Six goals for the game and capped off what was a really rewarding win for Essendon, considering the laid outs, considering that they had to play Devin Smith after he was supposed to miss two to four weeks with a PCL injury. Tom Hickey who? Even if the Bombers aren't going to be that good this season, this is the sort of game that encourages you, reminds you that we may be in the midst of a sophomore slump, but we've got something good brewing, big picture. And I think Nick Bryan has made a very compelling case to stay in the lineup moving forward. He looks very mature and composed, and while Draper can do most of the ruck work by himself, having the two of them both out there makes it easier to get those clearances, and those were pretty significant in the final quarter. Plus, it's always just a huge boon to your production as a whole to have a solid second ruck. One guy can do it alone probably 75-80% of the time, but that other 20 to 25% has the potential to kill you. Individually, we already mentioned Darcy Parrish. He finished with a goal, a behind, 32 disposals, 7 tackles, 6 marks, 442 meters gained, and 13 score involvements. Dyson Heppel had a game-high 12 marks and 12 intercepts. And for a team that struggled so much defensively, Essendon actually ended up out-tackling the Hawks 59-45, including 10-4 in their defensive 50 which, combined with some inefficient kicking from Hawthorne, kept some points off the board on a night where the Hawks led for three quarters of the game, could have been up by more, wasted a few chances to extend that lead, and until late, the Hawks were matching the Bombers and for a while exceeding them in inside 50s, though with that late surge, Essendon ended up winning the category 57-47. to If you're looking for the statistical bests for Hawthorne, Jager O'Meara and Jai Newcomb each had 28 disposals. O'Meara also with six tackles, five marks, 13 score involvements to Ty Parrish with the game high there, and 459 meters gained. 
Nukem gained just under that 445 and had eight marks, but definitely slowed down his production late. Dylan Moore with 11 marks and a goal one as well. But to me and probably to most people watching, this game raises a lot more red flags than it does give thumbs up for Hawthorne, even with their dominance throughout the first three quarters, because this is the second time in the past three rounds that a game has totally fallen away from them in the fourth quarter. And it makes me wonder if they're playing too fast for their own good or what exactly it is that isn't allowing them to close out these otherwise impressive games. What's interesting is that they didn't get off to a roaring start. Essendon actually got the first two goals and nearly went up 18-3 to had not dead Ben Hobbs had what would have been his first career goal tipped. He did end up getting that first career goal later. Max Lynch really whiffed on an easy chance early, then got a first career goal for himself. The Hawks did go on a 19-0 run to go up by the end of the first quarter and led by 18 at the half. As we said, led by as much as 25, though they could have brought that lead to 30. Had Jackson Callow not missed, they wasted a chance to punish some lazy Essendon defense there. Nobody for Hawthorne finishing with more than two goals. Jack Gunston with four behinds on a day where he missed a couple of chances that he usually takes care of. And he had the aforementioned blunder by Lynch. I did think... Newcomb played really well. You mentioned his stats already, but he really slowed down late and was a key reason the Hawks weren't getting those clearances. If you look back a few weeks ago against Geelong, when they basically were playing without a proper Ruckman, Newcomb was able to get a bunch of clearances and push play back the other way. And when he was ineffective late, that's when it just turned into a constant parade of Essendon inside 50s and goals. I will note the Hawks did break out the dabbing boombox during the third quarter. Maybe the momentum for that is what helped them keep the lead into the fourth, but not even the dabbing boombox could save them. While I was thoroughly entertained with that game, I did have the other one on in the background. And you shouldn't have. Benjamin, you can tell us more about that one that was played in hot, humid, and rainy conditions in Brisbane. Let her rip, Resident Eagles expert. Well, the conditions did slow down the Lions early. They only had five goals, six at the half. It was 36 to seven. Wait, the Eagles only scored seven? Yeah, this is fun. I was thinking that West Coast might have had a little life after Liam Ryan, who I had criticized for not giving it his all the past couple weeks, had a running goal from the pocket to put them on the board. Turned out the Eagles did have somewhat of a pulse for a while. But that was only because Brisbane didn't capitalize on their advantages until the second half. They started to open it up in the third quarter, and then they scored seven goals to one in the fourth. Ended up being Brisbane 16-9-105 to West Coast 4-6-30. As I alluded to earlier, a nearly similar scoreline to the other game involving Western Australian team. But in this one, it was the Western Australian team that was the massive disappointment. I don't know if disappointment's the right term. I think in order to be a disappointment, you have to have expectations. I disagree. I think you can still I think you can still be disappointed even when there is absolutely no bar. There is no absolute zero because everything can just go further and further into the negatives. Well, what about the team they brought out against North Melbourne? I think then the expectations were at absolute zero. No, that was against North Melbourne. There was still a glimmer of hope there because of how lacking North have been. But this was against Brisbane. 
Brisbane made good on a lot of forward half pressure once again. Got Jeremy McGovern to crack, which doesn't happen all that often. Now, the Eagles did actually look like they cared a lot early on. They were plus 10 on contested possessions in the first quarter. And with the score not being completely out of hand yet, I was thinking, all right, they aren't getting the points, obviously, but they could at least make this respectable. And it must have been infuriating for the Lions to not take advantage of this sort of ineptitude. But in the second quarter, the Lions definitely began to correct things. Contested possessions were plus 16 to the Lions. And even when they didn't stretch out the lead beyond 29 at the half, it was clear that they were beginning to find their groove. And it was kind of an exponential growth from there. They were at their best in the final stages. I would like to take a moment of silence to honor two wonderful things that we lost on Saturday night. First off, Darcy Ford's run of 12 goals without a behind. It finally concluded. He is now the all-time leader in most goals before kicking a behind, but he will not be extending that run any further. And second, the perfect record for caretaker coaches. It ends at 6-0. It was too good for this world, and it will be dearly missed. Thank you. A few standout performers for the Lions. Hugh McCluggage, four goals straight. He kicked three straight to open the fourth quarter. All off intercepts, may I add. 26 disposals, 10 tackles, and 10 score involvements. Dane Zorko, 26 disposals, 10 marks, 8 tackles, 537 meters gained. Lockie Neal, 10 clearances to go with his 29 disposals, 6 marks, and 6 tackles. And Daniel Rich, 28 disposals and 8 marks. Surprised that Rich had 9 handballs. Seems like he never has more than you can count on one hand in a game. When it comes to the Eagles, it was obviously the defenders that had the biggest disposal and ranking haul, but that's not the focus here. The focus is on the younger players, the wafflers, the top-ups, who really gave the most effort. In particular, Jake Florenka. 19 disposals, 7 tackles, 4 clearances and a feeling of dread that another team will pick him up before next season. Impressively, the Eagles were only minus three in contested possessions for the game and minus one in clearances. The relative clearance success was a side effect of the unorthodox ruck tandem of Harry Edwards and Callum Jameson. Hugh Dixon ended up being omitted, likely for reasons that we'll get to in just a little bit. But there are definitely some slight encouraging signs, especially against the team of the Lions caliber, Having said that, the point differential over the last four games was minus 331, and that's the worst stretch in Eagles history. So how much can you really take from this game on the plus side? Not a hell of a lot. Inside 50s favor the Lions 68 to 33. Ah, there's that. Hitouts 58 to 13, which makes it all the more impressive that clearances were just 38 to 37. Turnovers 81 for the Eagles to Brisbane 72. 72 is probably a few more than the Lions would like to have, but considering the wet conditions, understandable. You mentioned Hugh Dixon not playing. There were seven players who, after the round seven loss to Richmond, were seen at a nightclub the following evening. Club was unhappy about that, in part because it breaks the team's COVID policies. Each of these players was fined $5,000 by the club. A couple of them ended up actually being put in COVID protocols. But to me, what's even more significant is that it's a really bad look 
to go out and party a night after a 109-point loss. You probably shouldn't be out doing anything after any loss. You know, go have dinner with your friends and family, whatever, but this isn't an occasion to celebrate. Maybe if there's a loss where you can be proud of your team's performance, such as, for example, maybe Hawthorne showing against Melbourne a couple of weeks ago at the MCG, at the very least, it's not as bad a look. But when you consider this, combining it with the lack of effort you've seen on the field, that's a symptom of a club where they've really lost the plot. I hope this is a sign to the board that there needs to be more than just a list change and that they need to have a coach and a list manager in whom the players are willing to invest. There's no better time to actually fucking rebuild, and the Eagles have been really hesitant to ever do that. But if you want to keep that trend up of winning a flag every 12 years, it's the only way. Speaking of winning flags, Melbourne and St. Kilda got Sunday afternoon footy underway at the MCG. Wait, St. Kilda? Winning flags? What? Oh, right. Melbourne. And once again, the Demons took care of business, winning this one by 38-14-9-93-8-7-55. I came into the Sunday action expecting that the marquee games were going to live up to most of the hype, that they'd be close affairs throughout, that at least Melbourne and St. Kilda would reflect both of them being in the top four. Instead, St. Kilda managed just three behinds in the first quarter and never fully recovered from there. Melbourne led by 23 at quarter time, despite St. Kilda getting a good amount of inside 50s, but because they were having trouble connecting, and also Melbourne were just reading them well. I noticed them often doubling Max King early on, putting him in two-on-one situations that he clearly wasn't used to. But that was just another example of Melbourne being set up really well from the back. And even though they didn't always get the full way forward, their movement was overall a lot better as well. I don't think any team is close to them in terms of how composed they are from their back lines. The fact that St. Kilda ended up at 36.4% inside 50 efficiency is astounding considering they were operating at maybe around 25% for the first quarter and much of the first half. Yes, the Demons played quite well. I thought the stats didn't do Stephen May justice, especially early on. He finished with 16 disposals and 6 intercepts, but gave Max King a lot of trouble. Really gave the Saints' entire forward line a lot of trouble, and continues to establish himself as one of the best defenders in the entire competition. Jake Lever had nine intercepts, Jaden Hunt and Harrison Petty each had eight, and whereas conditions last week contributed to St. Kilda's offensive struggles, this week the conditions that caused that were less weather-related and more demons-related. And when it was St. Kilda's turn on defense, they looked like butter and Melbourne a hot knife. Callum Wilkie did have 19 disposals and 12 marks, but he was basically on an island. He had very little support from guys who I had been really impressed with for a few weeks now. This was the sort of game that at the start of the season I would have expected more of from St. Kilda. I saw very little from Jimmy Webster, Dougal Howard, and Daniel McKenzie. I had been especially impressed with McKenzie in prior weeks. This was a step back from him. In terms of the positives for Melbourne, Ben Brown kicked three goals and none of them were on chariots of fire-worthy runs. In fact, the one time he had one of those, he ended up missing completely altogether to the left. Kazi Pickett also with three goals. 
Ed Langdon racked up 39 disposals, 8 marks, and gained 566 meters. He was damn quiet last week, so it was great to see him bouncing back so quickly. Clayton Oliver, 38 disposals. Christian Petraka finished with just a pair of behinds, but 36 disposals and 629 meters gained. And Angus Brayshaw, another sensational all-around game. 31 disposals, 13 marks, 11 intercepts, and a goal. And probably the three votes. Also of note, James Harms punctuated a really good all-around game with a couple of late goals. He gained 467 meters. He's one of those guys who doesn't get the opportunities and limelight he deserves because he's surrounded by so much talent. But when you see him doing his thing and remember that he's just a supplemental piece within this team, it's a reminder of just how loaded the demons are. For St. Kilda, you already mentioned Wilkie's positive output. Brad Crouch had 27 disposals and 9 tackles. Jack Sinclair, 26 disposals, 9 marks, 7 intercepts, and 610 meters gained. Well, they were at their best in a stretch where they, ha- where they had a couple goals in a row on either side of halftime. They were winning contested possessions, and they were getting into space. Brad Hill was running more and and being more involved. Same for Mason Wood and Azai Wanganin Millera, who to me has been their most intriguing young addition. You also did have Marcus Windhager getting his first goal, and nobody getting around him because nobody realized it. Windhager entered the game when Dan Butler went off with a foot injury, also, Rowan Marshall had a couple of goals. Both of St. Kilda's rucks are capable going forward, but didn't see enough of that in this one and didn't see enough of them offensively, period. The Saints have now dropped two in a row, and it doesn't get much easier with Geelong up next, though that game is at Marvel Stadium, a bit more forgiving than when they'll play at Cardinia Park later in the year. Then they go to the Adelaide Oval to take on the Crows. So a chance for the Saints to get back on track They can earn a really quality win in the next couple weeks, but there's a chance that their performance, as it did against Melbourne, makes it look like their early season successes were a bit of a fluke. That said, they gave themselves enough of a cushion that they can withstand some shortcomings and still have a shot at finals, but if they don't get things right quickly, they will not be looking like the sort of team that could crack the top four. I'd say whoever loses this upcoming game between St. Kilda and Geelong not only drops to five and four, but considering how they've lost games and who they've lost to would be in a spot where a top four spot would be in serious doubt. Max King, I will mention, was pretty efficient with two goals and a behind out of just four touches. I mean, converting half your touches into goals is great, but only having four touches, uh, not ideal. Obviously, a lot of that was because of Stephen May, but the Saints have to find a way to get him the ball. It's simple. King also wasn't leading to the ball much. He was kind of a pylon a lot of the time, and I would really expect him to be better in that regard. He's shown his ability to lead a couple times before, but he needs to be willing to engage more with the midfielders and the other forwards because opportunities don't just fall into your lap in the AFL. Another notable storyline involving a Max is that Max Gone got a bit banged up, has a knee complaint, In training, yesterday said he was feeling all right and that he could figure in to play this next round, but why would you need to have him do that? You're playing the Eagles. It's in Perth, but it's the Eagles. Rest him up, then get him back in against North to be up to game speed in time for what is shaping up to be the clash of the season 
up to that point against Fremantle in round 11 at the G. I would think it would make a lot of sense to just rest him one of the next two weeks, whichever game that is. Final game of round eight took place at Marvel Stadium, where Carlton absolutely demolished the Adelaide Crows. I don't think the score did this one justice. They ended up winning by 38, 17, 14, 116 to 10, 8, 68, but led by as much as 66 after three quarters. I was going to say that final score looked that respectable to the Crows, even with Charlie Kernow adding a goal right at the death, his sixth. He ended up kicking 6-3 with 21 disposals and 10 marks and 609 meters gained. Nice, I guess? Would have been nice if the Blues had kicked one more behind to extend their lead to as much as 69. They led by 68 a few minutes into the fourth quarter before the Crows added a few late ones as part of their four-goal final quarter. And Adelaide also could have made things nice with just another point themselves, so there's another knock against them. Unfortunately... Adelaide have regressed to that form where they're just not giving you anything defensively. It's so easy to slash through them and score. There's very little resistance anywhere on the ground. Jordan Dawson did line up at halfback and rack up a solid 30 disposals, 10 marks, and 577 meters gain, but there was no stopping Carlton. This was a bad matchup for the Crows from the start, and the Blues really pulled away. In the second quarter, where they took a 26-point lead into halftime, then absolutely broke the game wide open with a six-goals-to-zero third quarter, in which they outscored the Crows in all 42-2. Charlie Curnow's been such an unsung hero because you focus so much of your energy on Patrick Cripps and Harry Mackay, so it was nice to see him get his time in the spotlight. Also of note for Carlton, Cripps did have his 35 disposals, 10 clearances, 7 tackles, and 2 goals. Sam Doherty may be his best defensive game of the year. 30 disposals, 11 intercepts, 10 marks, 9 score involvements, 455 meters gained. And a really nice outing for Adam Chero with 27 disposals, 7 tackles, 550 meters gained. Also of note, Jacob Wiedering with 9 intercepts and Matthew Kennedy, 23 disposals. He gained 610 meters to give the Blues more momentum heading into a trip to GWS which will be actually just the second time this year the Giants play in their main home. Despite being minus 24 in hitouts, more than doubled up in that regard, Adelaide with 46 to Carlton's 22, the Blues were plus 11 in clearances, 42 to 31. It was 50 to 14 in their favor on points from stoppages, and they tied their club record of 74 inside 50s. But I was expecting, even with all the forward presence they would have, That the tall fullbacks for Adelaide might stand the best chance of anyone thus far this year to match up against Harry Mackay. They had played well a couple rounds prior and just hadn't been given the chance to play well this round. They had plenty of chances here, and with Butts only giving six centimeters to Mackay and Frampton four, I was thinking that they'd do an okay job at battling him and Kernow. But even while Mackay only ended up with nine touches... He kicked 3-2 and seemed to just defer a lot of the time to Kernow, who had the superior ability on the day. Aside from Jordan Dawson, really the only positives to note for Adelaide, Luke Brown with eight intercepts, Sam Barry, 21 disposals and nine tackles, and Rory Laird, 33 disposals to go with his seven-tackle performance. I think this game helps reinforce something that I had brought up a couple weeks ago, 
saying that playing without Pitnet is difficult, but it's different having a week where you know you're going to be playing without someone versus what would happen when you lose a player midway through a game, which was the case in both of Carlton's losses. The last couple rounds, yes, it's been against weak competition, but they've entered games with the idea, all right, we're playing without him. Here's the challenge that we have to face because he's not there. Here's how we need to adjust. And the blueprints that they set in place this week should serve them well against the Giants with what the Giants and we have established in terms of the prowess they have with their rock tandem. The Proust prowess. One other note, in addition to tying their club record of 74 inside 50s, this game marked the first time since round 16 of the 2014 season that the Blues reached 100 points before the end of the third quarter. Before we go on to our traditional wrap-up with the mark of the week and goal of the week, we do have a couple of quick questions to run through. I ran a Twitter poll on one of them, asking, who impressed more this week, Essendon or Gold Coast? And the majority of respondents agreed with me, said the Suns were better, because A, they did it against better competition, and B, they led the entire way. Essendon's win was very inspiring, the sort of win that fans can really rally around. The sort of game that even if this season ends up being overall subpar for the Dons, something that players and fans alike will be able to remember fondly. I think that Suns fans should be able to remember this one as well, considering how consistent of an effort it was throughout. That said, it didn't have the same sort of oomph as scoring the final 44 points to win on a day where you ended up having to make five late lineup changes. But from a sheer football standpoint and overall playing a good game, the Suns stood out more. Next question. Who was worse, North Melbourne or West Coast? As I am a non-neutral party in this one, Ethan, I want you to have your say first. I think North were worse. I thought the way Fremantle plays should have lended itself to a situation where North can at least hang around for a bit before... Fremantle's pressure on the defenders became too much. And even with Ben Mackay playing really well while he was out there, they couldn't do that. I thought the Eagles, at least, sure, wet conditions may have helped as a bit of an equalizing factor, but at least they came out of the gates and competed for a bit. And once again, their younger guys, including some of the Waffle guys, made a case to playing in the AFL already. Man, a green does not make for the best material when it comes to recording podcasts. There are definitely more positives to take away from the Eagles, even though both they and the Roos had very limited pluses to begin with. My only question is how many of those positives are actually going to be West Coast Eagles, even when next season rolls around? Both teams were playing without key pieces again. Again, West Coast with their spate of injuries and the COVID protocols forcing them to bring in the top-ups. North Melbourne still not having Aaron Hall and Nick Larky being suspended in addition to Mackay going down. I had a feeling going in that Brisbane would demolish West Coast from the beginning. And even though they didn't grab the bowl by the horns early on, that was certainly the case. I didn't think North would ever be able to truly hang with Fremantle, but I thought at least the scoreline would look a little more respectable than it actually did. The last of three questions, and the one that's really been on my mind, we saw Melbourne outclass St. Kilda early and often. They are 8-0. Jake Bowie has now set the outright record for most consecutive wins to start a VFL-AFL career without missing a game. Do we have any idea of what it's going to take to stop the Ds? They're going to lose at some point. 
they're not going to be 25-0 the whole way through the year. And I'm willing to put money on that. But what will a team have to do in order to win a game against them rather than Melbourne faltering and not playing up to their own standards? It comes down to being able to attack Melbourne's zone. And I think there are a couple of different ways that it can be done. But the thing is, when the Demons execute their defense well, it turns into them having their mix of set kicks the other way, getting to take marks, getting to methodically advance the ball up the ground and control the pace. And you've got to be able to disrupt their pace. And I think there are a couple of different ways you can do that. One is to try to break the zone down into as many one-on-one battles as possible and try to overwhelm them with speed. The other option is to kind of flood one side of the ground and then reverse the ball to the other. I think the speed option is probably the most realistic one. The problem is you have to find one-on-one matchups that you can exploit, and that's hard to do because they're really deep. As good as their system is, I think their talent level would be enough to power them to great successes, even if they didn't have this airtight scheme in place. But I think the best way to attack it would be try to overwhelm them with speed, try to slash through the zone and open things up, and just play as up-tempo as you can to try to create some havoc and force them out of their rhythm. Because when they get into that rhythm, it's just suffocating. I have no idea how I see Fremantle in that situation because they have the ability to smother themselves and go slow, but they've also shown promise at faster tempos, especially when Michael Frederick has been in. I'm looking more toward the two matchups against the Lions as the biggest test for Melbourne, considering Brisbane's depth and how they're definitely able to create with a lot of speed as well. If they can be healthy with that, if Hipwood is able to be back in full, and and if Joe Danaher doesn't have to miss any more time, those could be some legitimately scary games for Melbourne, especially the one at the Gabba in round 23. If Geelong had a couple more players with Brad Close type speed... If Geelong had a couple more players with Brad Close-type speed, that's the sort of skill set you'd need in order to beat them. I just think you need far more than one guy with that sort of ability. You can make sure there's no one-on-one matchup you have to deal with if there's just one of them, but if you've got three or four guys with that sort of speed, then it can kind of break down that defensive scheme that the Demons want to put on you. All right, we wrap things up, as always, with our Mark of the Week and Goal of the Week discussion. First off, Mark of the Week, I think there's a clear winner here, but let's go through all three. First off, Will Hoskin-Elliott over both Nathan Broad and Jack Ginnivan. Second, Shane McAdam over Lewis Young. And finally, the one that we all believe should be the winner and should be a Mark of the Year candidate, Cam Zerhar hanging on teammate Todd Goldstein's shoulder, taking the mark to set up North Melbourne's first goal in what was an otherwise miserable night for the Ruse. This was an awesome play. I don't think there's really much more to say in that regard. It's probably going to be the highlight of the season for North, especially considering they weren't even the team that people were talking positively about after their one win. Hoskinelli would probably win most weeks. And McAdams ended up looking pretty cool as well with the separation he ended up getting after launching off Young. But this ought to be Zerhar's round, and it shouldn't be a question. When it comes to goal of the week... I don't think any of them were particularly that great. And I, and I, when it comes to goal of the week, I don't think any of these will stick. Unlike Zerhar's mark, I don't think any of the goal of the week nominees will stand a chance on Brownlow night. But they were all at least interesting plays in the moment. You have 
Harry Mackay tipping the ball up in a rock contest, swiping from the defender and kicking it himself. You have Nathan O'Driscoll with a lefty drop punt from the left boundary. You'd expect it to be the other foot, but Nathan did it his own way and succeeded marvelously. And then Peter Wright playing an advantage and kicking from the outside 50. Blake Hardwick for Hawthorne dove to stop it, but he came up short. I found these underwhelming in general, but after going through these a couple times, I would give it to Mackay over O'Driscoll. I just didn't think Wrights had the excitement that the other two had in the moment. I think Wrights ended up being so exciting in the moment, but not so much isolated. If you looked at each of them without giving any regard to the score, the significance of each goal, Wrights pales in comparison. I think his only really got in there because... It was so important in the scheme of the game. But I'm going to go with O'Driscoll. Usually set shots aren't really considered, but the degree of difficulty from that angle to begin with and to do it with the left foot on a drop punt is incredible. Again, though, I don't even think it was his best play of the game. His tap-in to keep the ball off the line and set up a Brennan Cox goal was his best play. That said... You've known by now how much I like this kid, how talented I think he is. He's looking like a 22 under 22 player, and I hope he gets the recognition for this one, if nothing else, because he deserves to be recognized week in and week out. He's been such an awesome player. He has been really fun to watch. I'm just against the idea of giving a goal of the week nominee to a set shot, even if it's a super long tour or something like this, where O'Driscoll should not be kicking with the left. Oh my god, he actually made that. I'm a little bit surprised that the Tyson Stengel soccer redirect didn't get in there. Again, though, the real highlight of that play was that Brian Myers kicked a ball with his left foot. I think the work with Eddie Betts is paying off. Speaking of Eddie, it was nice to see him on commentary for the Carlton Adelaide game. It was awfully fun to see. A couple of times they showed him on the boundary, and the fans behind him were so excited to see him. He is good for footy. And I hope we've been and will continue to be good for footy as well as we wrap up this, our 21st episode. We'll be back with you in a couple days to preview round nine. Until then, you can follow us at Americans Footy on Twitter. Again, I am personally at BenjaminHK01. I am at Castle Media and Ryan Harambe, the official footy cat who is sitting next to me right now and has been making noise throughout the episode, whether that be meowing or banging on the door or doing all sorts of other shenanigans. You can find him on Instagram, not Twitter, at cat named Brian, or just search Brian Harambe because his middle name is Harambe. I look forward to being back with you in a couple days as we break down how the West Coast Eagles are going to pull off the upset of the century against Melbourne. Good night, everybody. 